This story is going to make you very angry. It might even make you cry. Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. In the spotlight, a woman who grew up living in constant fear of her abusive mother and then of her own brother. She lived in squalor, wearing filthy clothes, in a home where cockroaches climbed the walls. She was left alone at night and never felt safe. She was beaten. She was burned on her scalp and on her arms with cigarettes. She was told she was unwanted. She was told she was unworthy of being loved. And yet, she survived, and she thrived against all odds. This story has an incredible ending, so keep on listening. My guest is the author of a memoir called Worthy. Her name is Kimberly Plant, and this is her story. Kim, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. You know, it's hard for me to know exactly where to start, Kim, because this is a big story. But I did want to let our listeners know that despite everything that happened to you in your childhood, you did find the courage and the strength to create a beautiful life for yourself. These days, you are happily married, you're the mother of six, and you're the director of respiratory therapy at Franciscan Children's Hospital in Boston. So tell us a little bit about your job. So these kiddos were born early most of the time and have tracheostomies and they're on ventilators. And we work with the parents and we teach the parents how to take care of their airways and and do the things that they need to do for these babies so they can go home and live a pretty normal life. I love the job because 24 years ago, I had a premature infant, and I know what it's like to be that parent scared to death of all the monitors and the machines keeping their kids alive. And at this point in my career, I feel like I am ultimately giving back what brought me into respiratory therapy in the first place. Well, speaking of respiratory therapy and ventilators, you, during your career, experienced the pandemic. And I'm wondering if you can share with us in a little time capsule, what that was like for you and your team. Yeah, it was hard because we didn't know what we were fighting and oftentimes didn't have the machines to hook people up to, meaning ventilators and BiPAPs. We saw people die, 30 people in one day. We had young people dying. We had pregnant people dying. And the hardest part for me was trying to keep my staff okay. Oftentimes, I would cover their assignments so they could go outside and walk around the building and just get some fresh air. The pain that we experienced and had to deal with every day and people coming back to work every day knowing that it was probably going to get worse made my job very hard, but I knew I had to be there for them. As a little girl, could you ever have imagined that you would be where you are today? As a child, I was always in survivor mode. I was born in Bridgeport, Connecticut. When my mother gave birth to me, she was 18. Your mother left you with your beloved Graham for the first few years of your life. Describe your grandmother to us. She had a chipped front tooth, white hair. She always wore a slip under her dress and knee-high stockings that always kind of never stayed up. I have a picture of that right now. She was a somber woman, like she had had a lot of pain in her life and didn't laugh and joke around and smile. What she gave you, though, was love. 
She did. Every night we would lay in her bed and we would say a prayer. And she would take my hand and say, you know, I love you, right, Kim? And I would say, yes, Grandma, I know. Your mother came back for you. How would you describe your mother at that time in your life? I knew her from a picture on the wall. I never had seen her face until she walked through the door. And I was sitting on top of the stairs, sliding down like I shouldn't be. And the door opened, and there she was with Richie. And she had a scowl on her face from the first time I saw her. Her husband, though, Richie, was very kind to you. He was kind to me. Did he even know that your mother was abusing you when they were married? No. No, she hid it very well. She would lock me in my room until he would almost come home, you know, about the same time every day. I don't think he knew. Here's the thing. She treated your little brother completely differently than she treated you. How do you handle that when you're a little girl? I thought I was broken. I thought there was something wrong with me. Because she was kind to my brother and Richie, my cousins, but she wasn't kind to me. Richie died and the abuse increased. Describe the home that you lived in. Richie was murdered when I was six, and then things got worse. We lived in a two-bedroom, one-bath house that was about 800 square feet total. It was filthy. There was sheets hanging from the windows for curtains, cockroaches all over, trash, dirty dishes. The house stunk of smoke because my mother smoked all the time. I never had clean clothes. I had accidents all the time. So I always would go to school smelling like pee. There is an expression that you hear in airports all the time. See something, say something. I know that you did not tell your grandmother or your aunts that your mother was beating you, that she was burning you with cigarettes, that she was leaving you home at night, that she was forcing you to live in unspeakable conditions, that she was not providing you with healthy food or clean clothes or a safe place to grow up, that your brother was also hurting you as he grew older and stronger. Why? Candy kids don't tell. When you're being abused, you think it's your fault. You're embarrassed. It's shameful. You think that if you tell, somebody else is going to see the horrible things that my mother saw in me. That's what I thought. When you were in middle school, you found drugs in the bathroom that you knew that your mother was taking. So you confided in your middle school counselor. I did. And what happened? They called my mother, and they asked her if she had drugs at the house, and she denied it. And I didn't know that they were going to call until I got home, and she was waiting for me, and I got beat. Which once again reinforced, I'm never telling anybody about all the horrible things that happen in my house. Right. Your gram would always say, you're not my child and I can't keep you here as much as you begged her to keep you. She even took a punch in the face from your mother one day. Looking back on it now, why do you think that your gram didn't step in and maybe report your mom to the police or the Department of Child Protection in Connecticut? Was she also afraid of your mother? Yes, she was. My aunts were too. But you were given a doll by your aunt. 
this was a special doll that you had, in the quietness of your heart, been praying for and praying for, and you finally got your doll. But the story does not have a happy ending. Her name was Holly Hoppy, and I loved her, and I promised her that I would take care of her and not let anything bad happen. But one day, I forgot to hide her when I went to school, and when I came home, she wasn't where I left her on my bed, and I found her underneath, far underneath my bed, and my brother had taken a black marker and marked all over her face and cut her hair. When you're abused and you live in a home like I did, you don't have anybody to protect you. Mm. You don't have anybody to stand up for you. When I say I was in survivor mode my whole childhood, I was in survivor mode. Well, as you grew older and you were working in a grocery store, you met a boy who offered you a ride home. And this man turned out to be your first husband. But he would bring you home in his big blue truck. And the two of you made a promise about turning 18. Tell us that story. I was 17. I worked at a grocery store. I had to buy my own food and clothes. So working was never a choice. It was a have to. And his name was Mark. And he would take me home and I would try to give him a couple dollars for gas and he wouldn't take it. And we didn't really date. I mean, we talked at work and, you know, on the rides to and from my house. I could never be late. If I was late a minute, I was grounded for a month, a minute. A month, a minute for being late. So he would make sure that you got home on time. But then you made a deal about being 18. Yep. He said... When you turn 18, I'm going to come take you away in my blue shiny truck. And he did. He did. He came on my birthday, and I had a little bag kind of packed, not much, not even really a bag, waiting for him to come. And he pulled up, and it was midnight, and I walked out that door. And she told me that she was going to call the police, and I just kept walking. What a moment that must have been for you. Almost like getting out of jail, right? Very much so. Well, you and Mark were married, and you had your first child together. But when you were pregnant with your first child, you invited your mother to join in a dinner party at your house with your new in-laws. Tell what she did. She was a smoker, so was my ex-husband's parents, and they were smoking after dinner, and talking amongst themselves, and I was cleaning up. And when I came to where they were sitting, Mark's mom was looking at me with hate. Horrible, horrible look. Like I had done something bad, and I I hadn't. And my mother, I call her Mary because I don't really think of her as a mother. Mary said she told them that the baby wasn't my husband's that I was pregnant by somebody else, So wasn't true. So she sabotaged your entire relationship with your brand new in-laws when you're pregnant for the first time yes. with this boy who came and got you at midnight, yes. as promised. And you also were not a promiscuous person, I either, not. not even a little bit. I'm guessing he was the first person you'd ever been with in your life. Yes. I know what's right and wrong. I know, even back then, what it's like to be kind to people. 
and to say something like that? I'm guessing also that it absolutely sabotaged your marriage for your entire marriage. (laughs) Yes. How did motherhood change you? I was 18. I didn't know anything about babies. When my first child was born, she came C-section after a long labor that didn't progress. And they delivered her. And she was mad. That child was screaming. And I said her name. I said, Jessica. And she stopped. And she looked at me. And I was was in love. Your first and second marriages didn't work out. And at one point, you weighed 400 pounds. Well, after I had Jesse, three months later, I was pregnant again. And I gave birth to a beautiful young man by the name of Justin. So I had two children within a year and never lost the baby weight. And focusing on myself was nothing I ever done before in my life. Like I said, I grew up trying to survive. And then my focus was then raising my two babies. And then I got pregnant a third time. And right after I found out I was pregnant, I was in a car accident. And I had a compound fracture to my back and almost lost my baby. So I was in bed for nine months. And food was the only thing that made me feel good. It was the only thing I did for myself, if that makes sense. Even though it was bad for me, it was a pleasure that I could have by eating a chocolate bar or drinking a Pepsi. I never learned what healthy eating really was. At some point, you wrote down your three-point action plan. And this was a shift in your life. After I put my kids to bed one night, had a little bit of wine, I got a piece of paper and I wrote down three things that I needed to do for myself to make myself better. The first thing was get a divorce. My husband wouldn't touch me, called me a fat pig, told me he re- I repulsed him. He never came home and when he did, he slept on the sofa. The second thing was lose weight. And the third thing was go back to school and get my college degree. At some point, you were a single mom with four children working three jobs. Take us back to that time in your life. And in particular, what were the life lessons that you learned then about surviving as an adult? The life lessons that I learned was I had to keep going. I had kids to feed. I had to keep going. I was not my mother. I was not going to live off the government. I was not going to lie to people so that they would give me money. My mother did that all the time to relatives. I had to make my children's lives okay and safe. That was my, and always has been, my number one goal was to love my children and make sure they're safe and happy. And I got through it. Well, One of my favorite stories in this book is when you first started walking to start losing the weight. And you were so heavy that you didn't even really have shoes that fit you or pants that fit you, 400 pounds. And you would measure your walking by the driveways that you would pass. Tell us that story. I'm six foot tall, but 400 pounds is a lot of weight to carry. And when you are that heavy your legs rub together and they rub together so much they rub holes in your pants and then they rub together more to where you have blisters on your thighs. Oh, I had very cheap tennis shoes and the insoles 
would wear through, and then the sole of the shoe would create sores on my feet because it was just rubber. Right. And when I started walking, I did it at night because I didn't want people to see and make fun of me. And I would count the driveways, you know, first four driveways, and then I'd come back, and then six driveways. And the more driveways I walked, even though my legs hurt and my feet ached, I felt so much better about myself. It didn't matter. And then as I kept going, my legs didn't hurt. Mm. And my shoes lasted longer. And eventually I got to where I patched my jeans and cinched up the waist because they were becoming smaller. What a feeling that must have been. I mean, 8 pounds, 20 pounds, 40 pounds. And you lost, what, 200 pounds? 220 pounds. Wow. What was your mantra? You know, here you are, you're walking. Are you just saying, okay, Kim, keep going, keep going? Like, what did you say something in your mind over and over and over again? This is going to sound silly, but there's a song called I Will Survive. And it would play over and over in my head. It still does sometimes when I get into a rut where I'm struggling on something. It just plays and it keeps me motivated. There was always great mystery and a lot of shame about who your father was. And then you learned something from your aunt that crushed you. Tell us that story. So my mother got pregnant when she was 17, and she hid the pregnancy from everybody except from her mother and her sister. My grandfather didn't even know she was pregnant, and she lived in the same house. I always wondered who my real dad was. It never made sense. She never would say exactly who it was. And when I was 25, I told my aunt that I needed to find my real dad. And my aunt said, well, I know who your dad was. Your mom told me. And I said, what are you talking about? She said that my mother had slept with her uncle. And my mother told her that was my father. So on top of all the things that you had to deal with as a child, feeling unloved, unworthy, unwanted, now you have to struggle with an incest piece. And that pretty much took you down. However, through the course of all of this, you and your husband, Tim, who have a beautiful relationship and a loving blended family, decided, let's do an Ancestry.com search. What the heck? Yep. And this is where the story turns around. Tell us what happened. I was leaving work and I got an alert on my phone from the Ancestry DNA app that said my results were in. So I call my aunt and we're talking and she's like, well, what does it say? And the first thing that opens up on these apps is your heritage, where you're from. And my grandparents were Irish and English, both sides. And when I opened it, it said I was half French. And immediately my aunt's like, well, that's not possible. There's no possible way you're French. And I'm like, I'm telling you, it says I'm half French. And as we're talking, I got a welcome to Ancestry DNA cousin from somebody I didn't know. And I told my aunt, and she's like, well, ask her who her grandparents' last name is. And I did. And she said two people, one of which last name was Plant. And my aunt paused, and then she said, oh, my God, Kim, I remember when your mom was sneaking around with a man by the last name of Plant. And after that, I became the world's best detective. And I found him, and I sent him a letter. 
And I also left a voicemail and a phone number that I had found online. And I waited. I waited and I waited for somebody to email me or call me and nothing for almost two weeks. And then one day I was sitting in a boardroom at a very important meeting with senior leadership. I had saved the number on my phone as my dad. You called it my dad when it came up on the screen? That's right. It said my dad on there. And I couldn't answer the phone right away. The meeting was super important. So I rushed back to my office after they didn't leave a voicemail. And I called them back. And a woman answered the phone. And I explained who I was. And I explained that I had missed a call. And she said, well, I'm Phil Plant's ex-wife. And I said, oh. I said, well, I have reason to believe we might be related based on a DNA test. And I told her about my mother and the year I was born and where. And she assured me that he was still alive, but not very good on cell phones. And she was going to call him with this information and ask if he'd be willing to talk to me or if he remembered my mother. And I said, absolutely. She's like, I'll call you back. And about 20 minutes later, she did. And she said, well, I talked to him and he didn't remember your mother, but that doesn't surprise me. That's why we're divorced. So he was a bit of a philanderer. (laughs) He was a very charming man back in the day. gotcha. (laughs) But she said he was willing to meet me if I would fly out to Connecticut. I was living in Arizona at the time. And I said, absolutely. And I left work. It was about 6.30, almost 7 that night. And it's just getting dark. I was on a highway. 65 miles an hour was the speed limit. And then all of a sudden, on the screen... Another number from Connecticut pops up, and I answered the phone, and an older man's voice came on with a very thick French accent, and he said, hello, and I said, hello. He said, is this Kimberly? I said, it is. He said, do you know who this is? And I said, well, I think it's Bill Plant, and then he said, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. You were beautiful, and you were strong, and you have my face. I didn't know at the time that they had gotten the letter with the picture, and hearing those words in that moment was just the best thing I could have ever heard in my life. I was going 30 miles an hour in my Jeep, (laughs) and I was crying, and he's like, okay, well, I'll see you. You're going to come see me, and I said yes. And then for the first time in my life, parents said, I love you. Mm. And I have been in love with this man from that day forward. He has welcomed you into the family. You've got brothers and sisters, and it's a big, happy family with Christmas and Thanksgiving. It's so amazing. I never would have guessed this had happened to me. I've been through some hard stuff. And I, uh, I got through it. I went to college. I got my master's degree. I got my profession. You know, I raised my children. I was okay. You're now married to a man who loves you deeply. How did you learn to trust him? Can I tell you a story about that? Please. When we first got married, my husband's kind of a jovial, fun guy. And uh, we were in the kitchen, and I was cooking. He's like, let's play a game. And I said, okay. He said, I'm going to stand behind you, and I just want you to fall back, and I'm going to catch you. And I was like, no. He's like, I'll catch you. And I'm like, I don't believe you will. You'll let me fall. He's like, I would never let you fall. And 
at that moment, I realized that living in survival mode makes you only trust yourself. And it took some time for me to be okay trusting him and letting him catch me. Through this life of yours, have you had someone who has ever been a role model for you? It was my gram. Only because I don't know if I'd know how to love anybody if it wasn't for her. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? And can you pass that along to our listeners? You know, somebody once told me that mistakes are only mistakes if you don't learn by them. And I always listen to that whenever I make a mistake and I screw up or I don't feel worthy. That's another one. Everybody's worthy, you know. We all have definitions for success. But at this moment in your life, with this book that you have written in your hand, what does success mean to you? Success for me is to hopefully make people aware of what child abuse does and bring light to teachers, healthcare providers, people who deal with children to look for the signs and know that a child's not going to come up to you and tell you these horrible things that are happening to them because they're scared. And we need to advocate for kids. Kimberly Plant, author of Worthy, thank you so much for being our guest on the story behind her success. Thank you so much. My thanks to Kim for sharing her story of survival with us. Get her book, Worthy, on Amazon. And if you suspect a child is being abused, call or text the Child Help Hotline, 800-422-4453, 800-422-4453. And thanks for listening to the story behind her success. Reach out to me anytime with guest suggestions. Just go to candyoterry.com. That's candy with a Y, O-T-E-R-R-Y. Dot com.